Okay, so we have some, uh, we've talked a lot over these days. We've offered, an, I think, a great deal of information about exploring these Satipatthanas. So I have just um, a few reflections I'd like to share with you this morning. Yesterday, Chris um, spoke really comprehensively about how to find ground amidst the thought storms that can torment us when it's appropriate to choose that sense of earthing, grounding, returning to the body, how metta can be helpful to serve as an anchor, how very important it is in the midst of thought storms, in the midst of papancha attacks, to, to sustain and to nurture a sense of spaciousness. I realize that the way that we've been talking about sati over these days is probably slightly different than how it's often presented in sort of more contemporary books and on mindfulness. I think it's useful to, to consider this word in Pali of bhavana uh, that we usually translate as meditation. More accurately, bhavana is to cultivate or to bring into being. This has a slightly different tone, doesn't it, than meditating. It has a more engaged tone that we are cultivating, we are bringing into being the qualities of heart and mind that heal, that liberate, that calm, that collect. So there's something very engaged about this. Uh, it's much more than just sitting on a meditation cushion and watching. You know, you could consider every time you take your seat in practice to, to ask yourself the question, you know, what is being cultivated in this moment? What is, what is the intention that I am bringing to cultivate? Being aware, as, as Chris said yesterday, we are always cultivating something. We are always practicing something. And sometimes that cultivation is, is actually quite unconscious. Sometimes we're practicing the hindrances or, you know, we're practicing habit patterns. And of course, the shift that the Buddha is encouraging in mindfulness practices is to cultivate that which is wholesome, to cultivate that which is lovely, to cultivate that which is freeing. You know, I find that um, many times when I speak to people in, in meditative circles, they, they speak to me about their practice. And not so many people speak to me about their path. And I think when we, when we engage in this journey of waking up, it is so important to actually think in terms of path rather than thinking that, you know, however wonderful it is, that half hour or 45 minutes sitting on a cushion every day is just such a small part of the path. And the path, of course, includes our speech, our actions, our work, the ways that we engage with the world, our relationships, that all of this is actually the ground of learning. It's the ground of mindfulness. So our intention, it's helpful for it to expand, to, to care for this sense of path in which everything matters in which everything makes a difference, where in every moment 
we are practicing something. And that renewal of intention to actually cultivate that which is helpful more than that which is unhelpful. You know, the more that I teach, the more do I find myself speaking on really two particular themes. And, you know, we have touched on them over these days. And one theme I find myself speaking about a lot are these five failing factors of craving, of ill will, of restlessness, of dullness, of, of doubt. Um, because these are such, these patterns have such extended families. And they are such the saboteurs of intentionality, as I've mentioned. And, and they're weather patterns that can be triggered so quickly and particularly are triggered by dukkha. So it is so important to be really familiar and really careful around these weather patterns because they are patterns of dis dissociation. They're, they're patterns of unconsciousness. They're patterns that lead to forgetfulness. Whereas mindfulness is a, 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 also a pattern that leads to remembering. And this other aspect of the teaching of metta, I'm so conscious that there is just never, ever too much metta. And what a refuge, refuge it is and how it really protects the heart. It protects the heart from ill will. It protects the heart from fear and anxiety. And it is the foundation of all healthy relationship both inwardly and outwardly. So it is something also to, to cultivate it, to remember, to, to bear in mind. Now this, and, and of course, the, the valine factors are the major producers of proliferation. It's important to make that linkage. They are the major producers of thought proliferation. Now, Chris mentioned, it, as, I, as I referred to yesterday, so many ways of beginning to um, step out of the proliferation patterns. Um, there's one thing to consider is how well-trained our mind is. You know, the Buddha once said that I can think of no one thing that does so much harm as an untrained mind. But that once understood, I can think of no one thing that is a greater friend than a well-trained mind. And what does a well-trained mind look like? You know, it, it's a mind that is, is not prone to papancha. It's not addicted to proliferation. It doesn't delight in proliferation. And that, I think, is quite a big piece, not delighting in proliferation. Because some proliferations, you know, of course, we just want to get out of when we feel tormented by, um, by ill will or obsession. Some proliferations we might actually find ourselves delighting in. You know? Delighting in my fantasies, you know, delighting in my reveries, delighting in my daydreams, delighting in my, my planning and my strategizing. And I think it's important to consider where do we delight in proliferation? Because the thing is that you can't just have one aspect of papancha. 
you know, you can't just decide I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to the nice proliferations, you know, the stories, the fantasies, but actually I'm not going to hold on to the difficult proliferations. Papancha doesn't actually have a conscience. Hmm? It's a habit pattern. Uh, it's not selective saying, yes, I'll just, I'll just have lovely, lovely thought storms, not difficult ones. If we have thought storms, some will be difficult. Some might have a taste of, of pleasantness. But developing a well-trained mind. You know, the Buddha put it in one of the discourses. A well-trained mind thinks the thoughts it wants to think when it wants to think them and doesn't think the thoughts it doesn't want to think. Sounds quite amazing, doesn't it? It's a lot of space in that mind, a lot of spaciousness, a lot of room, a lot of creativity. So the, the bar is actually set pretty high of what a well-trained mind looks like. But of course, that's not where we start. We often start with a mind that doesn't feel so well-trained. So I think this well-trained mind is something that we cultivate, not just on a cushion, but in our lives. You know, there are many moments in our lives, of course, where we need really quite a, a spacious awareness. You know, we're navigating our way down a busy street, you know, or we're minding a child as we're cooking a meal. We need quite a spacious awareness. But I think it's helpful to be sensitive to the moments in our day when our attention is unnecessarily divided, where our attention is unnecessarily divided, you know, where we're, we're washing the dishes and meanwhile we're, you know, we're, we're, we're listening to something else, you know, where we're unnecessarily divided. Remember how we spoke about samadhi, this collectedness, this unification, this integration, of body, mind, and present moment. And this is something to, to cultivate, I think, moment to moment in our day. It, is, it, it actually generates energy, whereas a divided attentiveness is often exhausting. Papancha is exhausting. Um, you know, I think about on retreats when you know, basically, we're just sitting around, you know, and occasionally we get off and have a little ra ramble, you know, and then we come back and sit around some more. I mean, I remember when my son was a teenager looking at a daily schedule on retreat, and he's saying to me, but you just sit around. And I thought, yeah, basically, that's it. We sit around. And yet how many people experience on retreats, you know, the utter exhaustion they feel at the end of a first day or the end of a second day of trying to be awake, trying to be present and just nodding off. We haven't been doing anything. We haven't been running marathons. We haven't been digging ditches. We have just been sitting around. And where does the exhaustion come from? Often from that, those thought storms, the proliferation, how wearying they can be, how leeching of energy they can be. So developing this collectedness, this sense of gathering, this sense of um, unification. In all the moments in our day, when we walk, we just walk. When we sit, we just sit. When we eat, we just eat. 
there is a discourse when the, the the Buddha was asked about the sort of fruition of the path, and he answered, "It looks like this: in the seeing, there is just the seeing; in the hearing, there is just the hearing; in the moving, there is just the moving." That kind, that kind of 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 simplicity and wholeheartedness that actually makes such a difference in our lives. And we experience the, the benefits of it. We experience the benefits of it in terms of a greater sensitivity, a greater an increased ability to listen well, in terms of more groundedness, more responsiveness, a movement out of reactivity into that appropriate response that Chris was mentioning. And it takes such patience. It really does take such patience to care for our well-being. And this is not, you know, this is not a task. This is not a project. It's not something to, to grit our teeth around. This is a way that we actually care for our well-being moment to moment. And in caring for ourselves, we also care for others. We care for others. But patience is needed. I remember uh, reading some of the, there was a Zen teacher called Aiken Roshi, a much respected Zen teacher of our generation. And he was teaching a retreat and he came into a retreat at the end of the first day when people were, you know, often having a difficult time in the first day, adjusting, settling, waking up, you know what first days are like. They're not always easy. And he came into the hall in the evening to give the Dharma talk. And he began by saying, the difficulties you are experiencing now. And people reported, you know, the, the sense of eagerness. He was going to offer some kind of magical solution, some strategy, some consolation. And he said, the difficulties you are experiencing now are going to be with you for the rest of your life. And people reported the sense of this horrible sense of deflation. The difficulties you experience now are going to be with you for the rest of your life. And of course, he wasn't sort of you know, describing some, uh, you know, lifelong sentence of dullness or agitation. But what he was encouraging is to consider what kind of attitude would you bring if the difficulties you're experiencing now are going to be with you for the rest of your life. Now, how often our minds have this pattern of leaning forward uh, when something is going to be over, when something ends, you know, and think about that in, in the wider sense, it, in the midst of, the, of this pandemic, uh, perhaps in the beginning, you had that mind that said, you know, when this is over, you know, or when this lockdown ends or when COVID goes away, then I will be restored somehow to happiness and to well-being. Think about it on your meditation cushion, how the mind can lean forward and say, well, when, when this dullness has gone away or when this restlessness has gone away, then my meditation will really begin. You know? Then I'm going to be able to practice. You know, when, when, this COVID, when COVID is over, then I'm going to be happy again or I'm going to, to feel more, more, more grounded or more secure. What kind of attitude shift is being invited 
when we're not leaning forward into something being over, something going away. If you live with, with chronic pain or with chronic illness or, you know, family difficulties, ah, what kind of attitude shift would be asked if we yielded that thought that says, when this is over or when this goes away, when you sit on a cushion and meet, meet a chaotic mind or, you know, waves of papancha or waves of, of ill will, what attitude shift is needed to say, ah, this doesn't have to be over. This doesn't have to go away. What would we, we be cultivating in the midst of that that would allow us to flourish rather than just to survive? You know, I think this teaching is so much not about surviving. It is about thriving. It is about thriving. What would we cultivate to thrive rather than to survive? And I think this is really why it is so important to have this, this, this landscape of sati with all of its extended family. What would I draw upon just now that I thrive rather than survive? Is it patience? Is it kindness? Is it compassion? Is it generosity? Is it joyfulness? Is it spaciousness? Is it collectedness? It's, it's, it's so helpful to have that landscape, you know, to say it's not just about hanging in there. It's not just about hanging in and, and, and you know, getting through. It, it is about flourishing, caring for, knowing that all of these qualities of loveliness that we speak about, these are all seeds of potentiality within every human heart, within every human mind. And as we, as we mature in the practice, I think we get a more attuned sense of what, what supports that thriving and what undermines that thriving. And we, we shift our orientation into this quality of bhavana to, to cultivate, to bring into being. We learn to develop a heart, a mind that actually feels like a good friend. It feels like to be a place of refuge. And so we play with this landscape. You know, there, there's so many ways that, uh, you know, when to be with something, when not to be with something. When, it, when it's helpful to, to investigate the difficult when it's helpful to take our attention elsewhere. It's so important not to turn into a commandment the phrase, stay with it, stay with it. I think one of the, you know, avoidance is sometimes considered, I think, in many circles to be one of the great meditative sins. You know, if you take your attention away from something, you failed. You know, you didn't have what it takes just to stay with it. Personally, I've never, I've never found that there's much benefit that comes from uh, being overwhelmed. And I've also never felt that there's much benefit that comes from increasing our willpower. It is about when to be with something, 
when to take our attention elsewhere. In one of the discourses when the Buddha is speaking about, you know, facing intractable patterns, facing the most stubborn patterns within us, he's so clearly pointing out, yes, we always begin with mindfulness. We always begin with, with the literacy of being able to identify and know what is happening. But then, actually, we begin to explore. When is it helpful to stay with something to deepen our exploration? When is it helpful to take our attention elsewhere? When is it helpful to cultivate what is missing in those moments? And in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha stresses this so, so often, you know, to know when mindfulness is present, to know when mindfulness is not present. Yeah? To know when kindness is present, to know when kindness is not present. You know, to begin to actually have that sense of, ah, this is the taste of mindfulness. Ah, this is the taste of unmindfulness or forgetfulness. When to cultivate, when to bring into being, when to bring into being that which is not present just now. It is one of the, the four great efforts, you know, the four noble efforts to bring into being the wholesome that is not already present. To deepen and strengthen and bring to maturity the wholesome that is already present. It's a kind of guideline, you know, and, and again, you know, just not always focusing on what is wrong, what is broken, what is imperfect, but to identify the wholesome that is present and to bring it to maturity, to bring into being the wholesome that is not already present. So just a, yeah, a few thoughts to start our morning with. Um, should we take some time now to, to sit? Establishing a posture of embodied intentionality. Wakeful, alert, kind. Perhaps taking one or two just slightly fuller breaths. With each out breath, just settling, arriving in the body. Calming the agitations. Letting the breathing find its natural, unforced rhythm. 
whether it's a shallow breathing or a deeper breathing. Sensing the aliveness of the body. Sensing into the mind of the moment, the minding of the moment. The thoughts, the images arising and passing, just like the sounds, like the sensations. Sensing into the fluidity of experience. Collecting, gathering, unifying.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.